So we get to do that through teaching this morning. And we're in an eight-week series through the book of Exodus. Exodus is in the Old Testament. Uh, someone say Old Testament. Old Testament. Old does not mean bad. Last week, you can go back and watch the sermon, the movement.church slash teaching is all there. Last week, we talked about how the Old Testament is not bad. It's actually beautiful, and it's actually the first half of the story of one story. The whole Bible is one unified story leading to Jesus. So maybe you're inside here or joining us online. You're like, man, I just don't mess around with the Old Testament. That's funky. I can't understand it. It's hard to understand, hard to wrap my head around that. And I get you, but it's so worth understanding because the first half of the story uh, gives us depth and context to the second half of the story. So if you love Jesus, and if you want to know who Jesus is, and you want to know why he did what he did in a greater sense, then we start with the Old Testament because that builds up why we need Jesus, who he is. And Exodus is a story uh, about God's people. It's a story about Israel. It's a story about us. And so the overview last week we gave was just one, one slide, one sentence. In Exodus, God is doing this work of choosing a nation for himself to bring about blessing to all nations. God is gathering together a people. He's gathering together a people, a nation called Israel, who he promised that it would come through Abraham so that he could eventually bless all nations. All people through all of time are gonna be blessed through the people of God, Israel. And we know why that is because Jesus comes through the lineage of Israel. So this is a big deal. Jesus is the, is the blesser of all nations and all people in all times. And he comes through Israel. So what God is doing is gathering that story together and making it happen right now through his people. But the people of God, the Israelites, find themselves in a very uh, tumultuous circumstance. They are in a time that does not look like the blessing has happened. We read last week and looked at how they were growing so rapidly that they became a threat to the Egypt, uh, the, the pharaohs and the people of Egypt and the rulers. They're hanging out in, in their own land. And Pharaoh, the ruler of, of Egypt, looks over and says, man, these people, they're growing too fast and they're not a part of us. We're not part of them. So we don't want them to, to gain up on us if they decide to leave. So what happens? They start making slaves out of them. And this is what Exodus 1 says. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. We read how Pharaoh wanted to kill all the first sons because he didn't want Israel to grow. And out of that, we saw that Moses was born. That through the babies being dumped in the Nile, through the midwives saying, no, we're not going to kill off the firstborn, through all of this horrible stuff comes the person of Moses who we're going to look at this morning. And last week's takeaway, just so I can, so you can put it before you again, it's going to come up again today, that God is sovereignly at work using the bleakest of situations. Anyone ever gone through a bleak situation? Raise your hand. You ever been through a, a bad situation? Yep, a horrible circumstance. We learn that God is over those situations. He's working, using them. And he's using the most undervalued of people to topple the enemy and advance his kingdom. The point, God accomplishes all that he says and sets out to accomplish. Nothing is going to stop God and his promises coming to fruition. Nothing will. And we're gonna see that take another dynamic level this morning as a story 
continue. So here's the question we're going to be at. We're going to be through a couple chapters in Exodus. But the question I want to frame our time together is to pick up the story of Israel being oppressed and them having worse circumstances than ever before. How does God accomplish his work? How does God accomplish his work? We know he does. Last week we said he does. He always accomplishes his work. But the question remains, and the Bible uh, it tells us how, so we should ask the question, how does God go about accomplishing the work he know, we know he will accomplish? It's one thing to know that he's going to, but we're in the middle of it. Most of us are not going to come at the end of the story. We're going to die before the story ends. Well, Hebrews 11 says, man, most of these folks, they die before ever seeing the promise. So some promises God has, we're not going to see until eternity. We're in the middle of the story, in the middle of the promise, and we're wondering, God, how are you working this stuff out? Because if we're honest, we often lose faith in the middle. We get excited about the beginning of the promise. We look forward to the end of the promise, but in the middle, we are like, where are you, God? And we find Israel in the middle of the promise. And we're gonna see what happens with them wrestling with God and God wrestling with them. Now, I want you to frame this time together with this. Uh, we're, gonna, we're gonna frame our specific attention on a few inter uh, interactions between Moses and between God. There's some unique conversations, Pastor Alex read them this morning, unique conversations between, that takes place between God and Moses that I want us to pull some lessons out that reveal not only about our lives, but it reveals about who God is. The unique interaction between God and Moses. How many of you guys have ever read through the book of Exodus? Raise your hand, don't be shy. Great, so there are folks that have never read through it. Yeah, and, and I want you, maybe you've known this passage, the Burning Bush passage. Pastor Alex, again, read it. Maybe you've heard about it. Maybe you saw a VeggieTales episode about it. I don't know. But, but the interaction is a lot more um, dynamic and um, interesting and hard to grasp than any kind of VeggieTales lesson. The VeggieTales lesson makes it clean cut. This is not clean cut. This is messy. How many of y'all know walking with God in this life, it can get messy at sometimes. It can be messy. So we're going to dive into the, the mess of this interaction. So Exodus chapter two through five is where we'll be walking through. Of course, I can't cover three chapters in one message uh, and, and, and get everything. So we're going to miss and, and, and overlook some things intentionally so that I can kind of connect some dots in this narrative. Now, for the sake of brevity, I want to give you a, a summary of chapter two. We just taught on chapter one last week. This is a summary of chapter two. This is gonna bring us into the story that we're gonna be at this morning. So the midwives, they don't kill off the firstborns. Egypt wants to stop them. So God says, or uh, Pharaoh says, throw all the firstborns into the Nile. So Moses' mom, we find the story of her putting Moses in this basket. It floats down the Nile and Pharaoh's daughter Pharaoh's daughter, the one in charge of Israel's oppression, finds Moses and says, has pity on her, or on him, on pity. Pharaoh's daughter, he, she knew that he was an Israelite, but she, her heart, for some reason, had pity on Moses. So she takes him in and makes him her own son. So Moses is found in the Nile, raised by Pharaoh's daughter, crazy. And 40 years into him being raised by Pharaoh's daughter, there's not one story for 40 years. Moses is there under the second, I mean, it's the charge of all of Egypt. The one is overseeing the oppression of Israel. And 40 years into Moses' story, he looks out, he comes out to 
the wilderness, the area where Israel is at, and he sees an Egyptian beating an Israelite. And the Bible says that he identifies with his people at that moment and says, that's not right. And he beats the Egyptian and murders him and buries the Egyptian in the sand. For 40 years, he's been an Egyptian. He probably knew he was an Israelite, but he's been an Egyptian, identified with the the, the, uh, Egyptian rulers and people. And at this moment, he identifies with the people of God and says, that's no more. And he murders the Egyptian to protect the Israelites. Now, he gets scared that he's going to get killed by Pharaoh. So he flees into the wilderness. 40 years of age, flees after he murders. He flees into the wilderness, sits down at a well. These seven daughters come looking for water for their sheep. And what happens? These other shepherds come in and they start attacking the daughters of this priest. And what does Moses do? He rises up, protects the seven daughters of Midian and saves them from the people who are harming them. I find it interesting And we have to notice this in the Bible, that there are things that are alerting us to what God is doing when we think they're just normal details. The fact that Moses killed an Egyptian and and protected an Israelite. The fact that Moses at age 40 flew to the wilderness and protected some daughters of, of a priest that he didn't know. This is what we see God doing in Moses. This all foreshadows the fact that Moses' role was going to be delivering the people of Israel. It's wild that God had not even spoken to Moses at this stage of his life. And yet somehow he's sensing a call and a burden to deliver people from their afflictions. Might not be doing it the right way by killing the Egyptian, but he's sensing the call nonetheless. God was raising up Moses before Moses knew God was going to call him. We talk about our call that God has on our lives, the normal call of following Jesus and specific call, whether you're a mother or a son or you're in this vocation, whatever God has for you specifically for your life, I want you to know, maybe you don't know your call, maybe you're looking for another call. God is raising you up to do what he's going to call you to do before he even calls you to do it. Do you know that? It wasn't like God said, yo, Moses, come here. I want you to do this thing. See, around the table at at this church, we've had a team of elders, plurality. I'm not the only pastor. I'm the lead pastor, but I'm not the only pastor. We have a team of people who have equal power and say in how we run this church. We debate and argue in different ways. It's not just one person leading it. And the way we do, we look at new pastors, is the, the rule that we say, besides them being qualified, we look at them and say, are they already doing the work before the call? Are they already acting like a shepherd and a pastor in this church before we give them the title? If they're not, the title's not gonna make them do it. We need them to do it before the title comes. Moses was doing delivering people, deliverance, before God told him he was going to. God is raising him up, preparing our eyes as the readers of the story to see where God is going. Now, look what happens next. This is This is beautiful. And Pastor Alex read this, chapter two. So he's in Midian now as a shepherd. He went from Pharaoh's house, top of the top, down to being a shepherd out in the wilderness. Now, during those many days, the king of Egypt died, the one who was ruling. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. It's another phrase for prayer. Israel prays to God. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard, notice these words, God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. 
God saw the people of Israel and God knew. If the Bible was just trying to be like, here's a matter of fact, it could have been like Israel groaned, God heard it. But you got to understand to slow down to read through the scriptures to understand that God's trying to reveal who he is as he tells his own story. That's why we need to read the scriptures because we need to know who God is. This is showing us that when the people of Israel cried and they prayed and they groaned, God heard, he remembered, he saw, he knew. God sees the pain of his children. He knows what they are feeling and he is not cold nor indifferent. He sees the pain of his children. I was talking to the team this morning and how the idea, the question that we have often during hard times is what? Why? Why is this happening, God? I'm not sure if God will give us the answer of why, but I know he will give us the answer of where. See, we want to know why this is happening. But if we understood why, it might not give us the comfort as the where does. The why might help us understand rationally. The where brings us comfort because God, where are you? We know that he's seeing. We have a sovereign God who sees our affliction, who is in the middle of our pain, who knows what we are going through and is not cold and indifferent to it. We want the whys, but God's providing us the where. I'm here. I see you. I care about what you're going through. Now, I know you and I, we're alike. This is how we're alike. Because when we read this story and we see our own pain, we say to that point, that's great, Chris, but the where, but that doesn't remove the pain I'm going through. That's good to know that God sees me, but he's not doing anything about what he's seeing. And if we look at Israel's story, the question should come up, why 400 years? This was 400 years of oppression and slavery under the Egyptian rule. Why 400 years? Why did it take God 400 years to see them? Okay, that's cute that God knows me, but why did he remember his covenant 400 years later? That's a question we need to wrestle with. We talked about this last week, how... It's not a bad thing to ask God what he's doing or where is he? Remember, the Psalms are full of that. If you're going through a hard time this morning, or if you're not, and I promise you, you probably will be going through a hard time eventually because that's what life is. You're going to be tempted to ask God, where are you? And yeah, we know he's close, but the question is needed. We, un- we have to understand that God wants us to come with those questions. God, what the heck took you so long to come through? It's not a bad question. Why 400 years? There's this interesting nugget that I want, you to, I want to show you. We're going to go back to Genesis. This might not bring a whole bunch of comfort to everyone's pain, but it does bring us some reassurance of God's activity in the midst of the pain and maybe even in the midst of his silence. You see, for 400 years, God wasn't speaking to Israel. 400 years after the last prophet, God had not spoken to Israel until Jesus came as well. There have been periods of silence. You ever gone through a period of silence in your walk with God? God, where are you? Why aren't you speaking? That's real. You're not doing anything wrong if that's happening. That happened to the people, the chosen people of God. 
And this is what God said to Abraham as he told him about this promise. This is 400 years before Israel is in slavery. Look, check this out. 400 years. God is talking to Abraham. He calls him out of his land and says, I'm going to start with you and create a nation. Remember, keep it in, in the back of your mind. Why did it take God 400 years to do this? He's talking to Abraham. And he's helping Abraham understand what his promise is, what God's promise is to Abraham, the covenant, the thing he's going to do through Abraham. Remember, he's going to start a huge nation that's going to bless all people. And look what this promise entails. 400 years before Egypt and Israel. I want you to know for certain, Abraham, that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. Years. I find it intriguing that Abraham gets this promise. Who wants a promise from God? Raise your hand. You want a promise from God? We all want promises of God. We, oh my gosh, Abraham's probably excited. Wow, you're going to choose me. I'm going to be a conduit of blessing to all nations. And what does God say? I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but your people, when they grow up, are going to be enslaved for 400 years. Thank God. But if you knew that was going to happen, why didn't you stop it from happening? You ever asked that question? Is this, t- is this hitting anyone right now? Man, God, you knew that was going to happen. Why didn't you, like, yo, you are God, and God does what God does. So if you were God, then why would you allow? Great question. Side note, I don't have an answer for this stuff. <laughs> you can ask Spencer. But they will be afflicted for 400 years. Now, catch this. Two verses later, God says this. So important. Catch this. And your descendants, people of Israel, shall come back here to the promised land where they're supposed to be going in the fourth generation, 400 years, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Whoa. Okay. You're telling me I'm going to be a blessing to many nations. I'm going to grow. A nation's going to grow out of me, but they're going to be enslaved for 400 years because of this other nation who's wiling out and their sins are not yet complete. So like you're withholding us from being freed people in Egypt until this other nation, their sins are rising up to completeness so that they're ready to be fully judged for their wickedness. That makes sense. But if I was Abraham, I'd be like, couldn't you just like make it 10 years and do your thing with them? Right? 400 years, God? Like, you're God. You can judge them and free us at the same time. I don't know all the answers, but I want you to see this is unique and, and distinguishable for us to realize that God is saying 400 years is important because I'm telling you there's something else going on besides just your own affliction. I said it this way to summarize. God's purpose for our pain involves more than just us. God's purpose for our pain involves more than just us. We say this often, I say this often, when God is doing one thing, he is doing a thousand things. You might get the privilege of seeing the one thing God is doing in your life. You don't know the other 999 things he is doing that is connected to the pain you are feeling. Does that encourage anybody today? God, I don't want this pain to happen, but I trust that it is connected to a bigger story, a larger story with other moving parts. Everything is connected. God is sovereign over not just your life, but the whole 
universe and it's all connected. And so God's purpose for your pain involves more than just your life for good or bad. Well, you can say, well, that's not fair because God was waiting for them to, they were sinful. Yes, there's even so much more. Just look at this next slide. A few things that God was doing in the 400 years. He was waiting, being patient, but also holy, judging the sinful nations. They were wiling out. He was going to bring judgment. If you ever had a problem with the, the conquests and the Old Testament, how Israel killed off nations, I want you to know that's not because they were just like, God didn't care about them. God was executing his judgment upon nations like he will one day come back and execute his judgment upon the whole world. But God just chose to do it then. His righteous judgment on people who, who deserve that because of their sin. They weren't undeserving, guiltless people. Judging the sinful nations, he was enlarging the people of Israel, waiting for them to grow into a large nation. He was raising up a deliverer, Moses. At this time when Moses, we're gonna see Moses gets called by God, he's 80 years old. It takes 80 years for God to raise up Moses finally to start him doing the work of delivering. 80 of the 400 was raising up Moses. And we're gonna talk about this next week. He's also hardening the heart of Pharaoh. I'm not going to go into that now, but he's working with Pharaoh to make sure that these things, this is a complex process. All of these things are going on and all interconnected. And Israel, all they see is, I'm in pain, I'm in affliction. God, where are you? And I want you to know that you might not understand why you're going through what you're going through as the people of God. They didn't know it. They probably forgot about what the promise of Abraham. They sure did because they were crying out. Okay, even if I knew that was coming, God, this still hurts. But can we rest assured when I go through hard times, I want to be able to say, God, I don't know why you're doing this, but I trust it's going to serve a purpose greater than me. The pain that I witnessed of my, of my sibling or my, this marriage or this problem or this pain is bigger and larger and more extensive than just the thing that I am going through. Can I tell you, God does not waste anything, especially pain. He's going to squeeze out everything he can from the pain you're going through. He's going to maximize the pain you're going through so it can be effective for your life and for as many others as possible. Do I wish we didn't have to go through pain? Yes, but that's the life we live in this broken, sinful world. But I'm thankful that even though we have to, God is able to use that pain to bring about good to us and to the world. Amen. We see it in the cross of Jesus. He's able to use the brokenness to bring out beauty. He is doing something in the affliction. Now, I find it so interesting that the next part of the story, he's talking to, um, or Moses is there, 80 years old, and we have to ask the question, how does God respond to the cries of his people? Because they're groaning, they're praying, they're, they're God, why aren't you helping and they don't know that God remembered his covenant. That's what the Bible says, but that's not what we know is going on. So what happens next? How does God respond to this? Does he just ignore it? Does he explain it away? If you have a Bible, you can turn to chapter three in Exodus. We're gonna read through a few verses to see what his thought process is. Now, chapter three, verse one. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law. He went from probably second in charge or whatever. He's, he's living large as a, a, the, the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And now he's a shepherd out in the wilderness, unknown, keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Oreb, 
And I want you to know that mountain Horeb is actually Sinai where he's going to come to later to receive the law of God. So he's hitting here. The burning bush is not on the ground. It's on a mountain. And that mountain is where he eventually goes to, where the people of God go to. It's called the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Strange. So he comes in closer. So what happens next? Verse three. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush. This is, this is a, this double notion of names is, is a, a sign of intimacy. Like when he would say, Martha, Martha, like Jesus said, you're doing all this stuff. It's a sign of intimacy. I know you, Martha. God says, I know you, Moses. Moses, Moses. Moses said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off of your feet for the place on which you are standing is Say that with me, holy ground. Okay, so if you think there's an angel at this bush, it's not an angel. The angel of the Lord, oftentimes in the Old Testament, is God's presence. This is God, not a messenger of God. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He reminds Moses of who he is, and Moses hid his face. After, after sensing and hearing, wow, you're that God? You're the God of my family who's, been, who's done all this stuff? And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. He goes on to say one more verse, one chapter. Then the Lord said, I have surely, so he answers Moses to cries that he said, I've seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Notice these lines. I have come down to deliver them. This is God speaking. I have come down to deliver them. Question we have to ask then is how will God intervene to deliver Israel? How is God planning to do this? God literally tells Moses, I have come down to deliver my people. So our question should be how? And look at the next verse. Chapter three, verse 10. Come <laughs> and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel out of Egypt. Can you imagine, put yourself in Moses' place. He's sitting there, already a terrifying experience to be in the presence of God, so much so there's fear and trembling because he's in this holy place. And he's there, and what happens? God says, I'm gonna come down and deliver my people. And Moses is probably like, let's go, baby, finally. And Moses is like, okay, how's this gonna work out? And God's like, come, Moses. Moses is like, what? You, I want to send you to deliver my people. Don't you find it interesting that God would use the language, I'm going to come down to deliver my people. And then Moses says, I want you to deliver my people. You know why? This is a, this is a theme throughout the whole Bible. God's intervention in this world often happens through the people he has chosen. We're often looking around saying, God, where are you? Why aren't you doing things? Why aren't you present? And God's principle that we see throughout the whole story of him intervening in the brokenness of this world is oftentimes through people. We were praying this prayer this morning. God, thank you so much that we get to interact with your presence through your people. 
Do you know that if you're a Christian, follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit dwells in you, you are called the temple of the living God. And so when I interact with you, no matter how ratchet you are, I'm at some level interacting with the presence of God. I'm at some level interacting with the presence of God when I interact with someone who's filled with his spirit. So it makes sense that God would choose people to work through. That was the intention in the garden when God created the world before sin. And he calls Adam and Eve as vice regents and says, I want you to do, help me alongside of me to carry this plan of flourishing this earth with me. I want you to grow this earth into something beautiful. That's before sin. God calls Adam and Eve by his side, says, let's do this work together. And what he's doing through his redemptive plan is to bring God, his people, the world back again to his side to do his good purposes. Now, that's Israel. God's intervention in this world was through Moses at that moment. But I want you to know, if you are in Christ, you have been created and chosen by God for good works in this world. Do you know that? You have not just been saved so that you can be saved from sin and saved for heaven. It's not just a past tense saved from sin. It's not a one day I'm saved so that eventually I'll go to heaven. It is a you have a mission now. God wants to do something in you and through you in this world. The Bible literally says, after letting us know we've been saved by grace, we've been saved by grace for good works. God wants to do his redemptive plan, work out his redemptive purposes through you and I. You might be sitting here this morning saying, man, but I'm a nobody. And I just come to church and I listen to professionals. I don't have, I'm not, no. God would say, if you were in Christ, I want to do amazing, beautiful things through you in this world. I did it with Moses. I brought him on and I want to bring you next to me to work. Now, back to Moses. Moses is in the presence of God, okay? He's in the presence of God. So much he hides his face. So he's realizing this is God. He's called by God to help rescue. This is so crazy. How does Moses respond then? I don't know if you could put yourself in the Moses position. If you were like seeing the God of this universe right there, burning up a bush, but not there, speaking to you, and you felt the holiness of God. You felt the, the reverence. You felt the sacredness of that moment. You were trembling with a joy, but also a fear. You were aware something was uni- unique was happening. And God said, I'm going to call you, Moses, to help deliver my people. How would you respond to that? Just think about that for a second. How would you respond if God said, yo, Nate, yo, Haley, look, look at, look at, and I want you, I want you to do this amazing work of delivering. You know how Moses responds? This is going to be encouraging to you. Verse 11 in chapter 3. Who am I? Who am I to go do that? Moses said, God, do you understand? You got the wrong God. Do you understand who I am? Who am I to go? A couple verses later, he said, hey, okay, God, I get it. You want to choose me, but if I go back to Israel, they're not going to believe me. Who am I? And man, I know you're God, but if I go back, they're never going to believe me. And if that was enough, he goes on to say, okay, but I get it, God. Maybe they'll believe me, but I'm not an eloquent speaker. Do you know my stutter? I'm not good. I can't be your spokesperson. 
Like, can you imagine saying this to the God of the universe right in front of you? Who am I? They're not going to believe me. I'm not a good speaker. And then at the end, Moses says, yo, God, that's all great, but send someone else. Whoa. S send someone else? Like, God is there talking to Moses, and Moses like, can't do it, can't do it, can't do it. Send someone else. And lest you think this false humility is cute, the next verse says God's anger was kindled. Don't play the false humility stuff. That's not cute. I've done that often in my life. You know what that does? That just erases God's grandeur that he's put in you to be able to do his work. False humility doesn't help anyone. Oh, it's not about me. Yeah, we know it's not about you, fool, but God's in you, so let him work. Like, we're aware of that. We know you're pretty wretched, but God is amazing. Hallelujah. He's going to use you. False humility is pride. But who am I? They will not believe me. Because some commentators were saying Moses is just being so humble. No, because if God was sensing that Moses was humble, he wouldn't have been angry at him. He'd been like, good job, Moses. You're so humble. I'm going to raise you to be even more. No, no. He said, you fool. Do you understand? I'm going to call you and equip you. I'm not just going to call you and leave you. Look, look at what Moses is really doing. If we really thought macro level, he's questioning his identity. Who am I? I'm not worth anything. I'm not valuable. I can't. Do you know who I am? I can't do this. He's questioning his influence. Man, there, I have no, I, I can't go over and talk to them. They're not going to believe me. They're not going to listen to me. They're not going to follow me. My identity is useless. My influence is weak. He questions his ability. I can't speak. I don't have the skills to do what you're calling me to do, God. Anyone ever said this before? And then he eventually, because of this questioning, he flat out rejects God's call on his life. Yo, please someone. He said please, which is nice. But he said, please send someone else. And God's like, don't you have a brother? Bring him over here. And God was having to be gracious and patient with Moses' denying of who he was and we do the exact same things. We sense our own inadequacies. We doubt people will receive us. We question if God can use us. We make excuses for not going. Just look at this for a second. Have you ever done any of these as God has put a call on your life or through someone else? I'm, I'm inadequate. They're not gonna... Uh, no, a question, God, you can't use me. And then we give all these excuses for why God can't use us. Some of you are very clear on what God wants you to do, but you're not wanting him to use you because you have a whole bunch of excuses in the way. And God is not like, unaware of the problems you have. He has chosen you in spite of your problems. They're not a problem to him. So why would they be a problem to you? And God does not see it as an obstacle. God doesn't say any of this stuff. He's like, man, are you talking about your mouth? You know who made the mouth? I make people see or not see. I make people speak or not speak. I can help your mouth. Thank you, Moses. God's like, I can do whatever you think you cannot do. Let me bring it a little bit more personal for you. Have you ever said these things? I have a questionable past. Chris, if you knew the things that I've done, even as recently as last week, you would not ask me to lead or to help out or to serve, or God would definitely not call me to do special things. 
Do you know the amount of failures I've had? You know the infidelity. You know the cheating. You know the lust. You know the stealing. You know the gossiping. You know the anger, the hate. Do you know what I've done? God's not trying to call me. God's trying to call people that do things that are a lot better than I do them. Oh, but I have doubts I'm wrestling through. Chris, I don't even believe. I have doubts. God can't use me until I have perfect faith. I don't have that kind of personality. Oh, I hate this one. Sorry. I just, I'm a human. I got some problems. But one of my problems is your problem by saying that you, your personality is getting in the way of God using you. If God made you a certain way, he's going to make you a certain way to be able to do exactly what he's called you to do. That's not an accident and it's not an excuse. That's on purpose. Your introvertness or extrovertness is not a problem. It's a gift. But don't use it as an excuse. God made you exactly how you need to be made. Now you need to be progressively sanctified, so don't sit where you're at. But God's made you who you are so that because he's no, I need a person like you in this church to do this. I need a person like you with that kind of temperament in that job to be this. Lastly, I don't have that skill or talent. I can't do it. Can't speak, can't write, can't do this, can't do that. I can't talk to my neighbor. I don't have the boldness. I can't do all these things. Has any of these landed on Anyone ever said any of these before when God's called you to do something? Come on, raise your hand high if you've ever done that. I made this excuse. Yeah, come on, I've done this so often. I did this when God called me to lead this church a year ago. God, do you know who I am? You know, I failed almost two church plants. God, you know, I can't, I, I don't know if you know, but I, I went to Bible college, but I, I, that's all I got is a degree. I don't have a whole bunch. God, I don't have the faith. God, I don't know how people are going to receive me. I said all these things in my journal. I'll show them to you. God, I don't know. I can't fill up Ed's shoes. I can't do these things. And you know what God said? I mean, he didn't say this, but he said this in a lot of different ways over the last year. Shut up. I'm serious. If I've called you to it, I'm going to help you do it. And this is what he tells Moses. Look at the next verse, chapter 3, verse 12. He said, in response to all this, oh, I can't do it, God. God's like, but I will be with you. I love how God does not deny the objections Moses brings, except for the mouth one. He doesn't deny it. Yeah, they're probably not going to believe you, Moses. <laughs> That's why I'm giving you all these signs to do. Yeah, who are you? That's a good question. You kind, of, you kind of kill someone and ran. That's, that's kind of sketchy. The word but is important because he's kind of, the, the author, Moses, wrote this too, which is really perceiving. The but shows us the contrast between what has taken place, Moses' response, and God's response. But I will be with you. You know where else that shows up in the Bible? That God's presence is going to empower us to do his mission? At the end of the life of Jesus, when he gives us our call, Moses' call was to deliver his people. Your call, if you're a Christian, is to make disciples. And look what the end of the, the, the phrase is that Jesus says. He said this, Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He didn't need to say that. He could have said, yo, every Christian, every apostle, go and make disciples. Go and help people come to learn how to follow the way of Jesus. Go and teach people how to obey, period. And that would have been enough. But somehow God perceived our timidity, our objection, our excuses and our inadequacies. And God said, yo, I know this is hard, but I'm going to be with you until the end when I come back. 
You know what he did to Midian or Gideon? He told Gideon, look, I want you to fight against the Midianites, but you got an army of 20,000. And he's like, yo, God, I'm the smallest person out of the smallest tribe. And God's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know what? I'm going to be with you. So God tells Gideon to go from like 12 or 20,000 people to 300 people to fight this army. And God gets the glory. Why? Because God's with him. Not because Gideon was awesome. Said it this way, we misplace our confidence when we place it in ourselves. The problem is you're putting confidence in the wrong thing, so you're wondering why you don't have confidence. Are you valuable and made with, and made with dignity and made in the image of God? Answer that. Okay, some of y'all need to really believe that. Are you made in the image of God? Yes, you have value and dignity and worth, but the fact that you're imperfect does not take away dignity. You are still imperfect. You got problems. You got holes and gaps and insecurities. But so it's not a good thing to place confidence in ourselves for doing the things that God has called us to do. Our only source of confidence lies in God being with us. You on your own, apart from God, Holy Spirit in you, not a good thing. Are you kidding me? How do we not know this? We have the Holy Spirit with us and we're still ratchet and crazy. How much more would it be if God wasn't with us? But God wants us to realize I'm with you and so you're able to do what I've called you to do. The reason why you're doubting is because you're doubting that I'm with you. You should know that you're incapable. That's why I'm gonna be with you. That's the whole point. If Moses had what it took to do what God wanted him to do on his own, he wouldn't have not said, I'm gonna come with you. He would have said, go. But he said, I'm gonna be with you because he realized that Moses needed his presence. And Moses finally gets us at chapter 33 of Exodus when they're about to leave and God is fed up with the people of Israel. And God says, I'm not going with y'all. And Moses says, if you don't go with me, I don't wanna go. I don't want to go if you don't go with me. Why? Because your presence with me is the thing that distinguishes us apart from all other nations. You being with us. And back then and now, there's no other gods that promised to be with his people. God was up there. You're down here. You better make sure you appease him. Maybe you're coming today and you're used to religion and you think you are a Christian, but you're just about religion. You're about God being up here, you down here, and you got to appease God and work yourself up to him. That's not the gospel. The gospel is I've come down to be with you through Jesus. And I thank God for that because I stare myself in the mirror every single day and I'm like, I don't got what it takes, God. The thing that keeps me going is not that I'm like incre- incrementally growing. That's, that's encouraging. But even when I do not grow or I don't have what it takes, I know God is with me. You have to believe God is with you. That means something, fam. That means more than you can imagine. In fact, the Bible even tells us God chooses the weak and foolish things of this world to bring about his plans so no human can boast. If it was so that you can have all the power and you didn't need God, then you'd be able to boast in his presence. If it wasn't grace, when you got to heaven, you can look at God and you wouldn't worship him. You would say, you owe me, God, because I've done this stuff. But see, when you get to heaven, you're not going to be saying, God, you owe me. You're going to say, God, I owe you because you were gracious to me. Why? Because it's very evident, God. And maybe you're not there yet, but eventually you will be walking with the Lord. You will see it's very evident. He's using weak and foolish things to confound the wise, to bring about his good purposes and plans into this world. 
And you can't boast about it. You're just gonna be thankful for it. I'm thankful, God, that you use a weak vessel like me. I doubt myself all the time, but I have confidence. I've placed my confidence in you being with me so you get the glory. Now, chapter five, the story goes on. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord. So Moses finally gets with it. God calls Aaron, his brother, along with him. I want you to help Moses because he's tripping. So both of y'all go. And afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord. They are speaking on behalf of God, the God of Israel. This is who's talking, Pharaoh, the God of Israel. He says this, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. So he finally goes and starts the process of delivering. And he says, God told me, the God of Israel, our God, the Lord. We didn't touch on it, but when God says, and he reveals himself to Moses, I am the great I am, Yahweh. I am self-existent, self-sufficient. I don't need anything. I am God. That's what he says to Moses. And Moses takes that to Pharaoh and says, the God of the universe is coming and tells me to let my people go. Now, at this point, if you don't know the story or if you've forgotten, we would imagine, wow, Moses finally submitted. God is with him. This must mean things are going to start working out. It's already been really hard for Israel. Things got worse already. They got, they got more oppressed and more afflicted. So what's going to happen? I would imagine things are going to turn around for the good. When God makes clear voices in your life, he speaks into your life, you're thinking, man, God's going to, now he has some good for me. And look what happens. Pharaoh reacts with anger. He said, what do you mean, Lord? I am Lord. Pharaoh's like, no, 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 there's no other God beside me. Pharaoh saw himself as the God. So when, God, when Moses says the God of the universe basically is called, Pharaoh's like, no, no, that's not happening. Israel's situation gets worse. They were already making temples and, and statues out of bricks. And, and Pharaoh says, I want you to make the same amount of bricks every day, the same quota, but now you've got to find your own straw. They were being provided the resources. And so Pharaoh doubles the work basically and then starts beating them for them not being able to accomplish their task. Things get worse. Their affliction gets heavier. I, I don't know. This is not encouraging, but it is simultaneously encouraging because this is what happens in life. We think things will get better. And what happens? Oftentimes they end up getting worse. That's why I say I love the Bible. The Bible does not sugarcoat life. If the Bible was written by man, I would write that after this, Pharaoh fainted in glory and God like walked in and bam, baby, my people are, are freed. It's not what happened. So either, either uh, God's not powerful or God knew what he was doing. I chose the latter. God knows what he is doing. Now look at Moses' response. The people of Israel are, are mad, are mad. They're like, Moses, we hate you. They, they were not happy at Moses. I can imagine Moses being like, God, I told you people were going to hate me. Now they, they want to kill me. I made it worse. And look what happens. Moses turns to the Lord after this. The people of Israel are not happy. Moses turns to the Lord and said, oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? What a claim. Why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? Anyone ever asked that when God sent them somewhere? God, why did you even have me do this? If I'm imagining, God, you're going to call me, this is going to call me into blessing. 
we have to wrap our heads around that God's call into blessing goes through the process of pain. This was through the process of pain. Why did you ever send me? He doubts again. I made things worse. I'm a mess up. You ever been there? Man, I I should never have done that. I screwed it up, God. For since I came to the Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. And look at this claim. You have not delivered your people at all. He's fed up, probably lost faith. God, you said you were going to deliver your people. 400 years, and really the one time I start doing stuff, you make it worse. Moses basically says this. This isn't how it was supposed to go. You ever thought that? This is not how it was supposed to go. It's not how my marriage is supposed to go. Not how having kids is supposed to go. Not how this job was supposed to go. Not how church was supposed to go. Not how this interaction, not how this move, not how this transition was supposed to go. God, this is not how it was supposed to go. Moses assumed a quick deliverance. God, you haven't delivered your people yet. It probably was like a couple weeks since the burning bush. You haven't delivered your people yet. Moses assumed no setbacks. He assumed if God was in it, there would be no setbacks. How many of us had the faulty assumption that if God's in it, there's going to be no setbacks? It's not reality. And lastly, Moses questions God's plan. I don't think you know what you're doing, God, because you're not delivering your people. Here's the way that Moses went wrong and the way that we can go wrong. Moses interpreted success based on the circumstances around him rather than on God's character and word. Moses' view of success was based on things happening in a certain way. How many of us walk in situations in life and think, I'm going to base success on what I see happening right in front of me? Now, that seems obvious and plain. But what I want to say is that sometimes, because life is broken, you will not automatically and initially see the things you want to see in your circumstances. So you have a choice to believe God has not done what he said he was going to do, or God is working something out. Moses said, oh, this is not being successful because I'm looking at things going wrong. Moses should have not looked at the circumstances. Moses should have looked at the promise that God gave him. He said, I'm going to do it. And when God says, I'm going to do it, what does that mean? I'm going to do it. See, our eyes can be focused either on our circumstances or on God's character. They are very different. And at any given moment, you have to realize, what am I staring at and focusing on in this season? Am I focusing on if things are getting better or am I focusing on the fact that God's promised it will get better and I'm clinging to that while it doesn't because one day it will. I, wanna, I want things to get better, but they always don't right away in my timing. They do, but not always in my timing. So I'm going to cling to God's character. And this is what God says to him as we wrap up. Look at verse 6 of chapter Six. God answers. So thankful that God answered Moses. Moses was pretty rude. He called God basically evil. Questioned why God sent him. And then God says this. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I'm the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you from an out, with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Do you notice the theme here? Who is God talking about the most in this? Shout your answer out. Who's God talking about the most? Himself. 
God is saying, I'm not fazed by what the Egyptians are doing. I'm not fazed by your questions, Moses. I'm not fazed by the circumstances. I'm not fazed by Israel's complaints. I told you who I am, and I'm gonna to- I told you what I promised, and let me remind you, I will deliver, I will redeem, I will take you out, I will be your God, I am the Lord. He doesn't even pay attention to their, to their complaints. You know why? Because he knows his character and his promise are the thing they need to cling to in that moment. He's not trying to get on our level debating why circumstances have gotten worse. He's reminding us who he is in the midst of the circumstances. If you're wanting God to get on your level to explain why things are happening, I I hope God gives you the answer. I'm not sure he will. He didn't do it to Job and things got a lot worse for him, but God told him something. I'm with you though. And God did the same thing to Moses as he did to Job. He He brought in front of Moses and Job who his character was and his promise. What you need right now is not circumstances getting better. What you and I need is a fresh vision of faith of who God is because that gets lost so easily when circumstances change. God reminds Moses and Israel of who he is. He says, the Lord, the Lord is the word God Almighty. That means there is no God above me, he says. Moses, I want you to know I am the God above all other gods and how he is solely responsible for their deliverance. He takes it all on his shoulders. He doesn't say, Moses, you could have done better. He doesn't say, well, I'm waiting for Pharaoh to soften his heart. He says, I am going to do it. Just watch and see. It's true. While Moses was there as a deliverer, he was. We have to believe that God was the one doing the rescuing. Moses was there to help deliver his people but God was the real one doing the rescuing. And he was working it out the whole time, the whole time, in spite of Moses' opinions and perspectives. So here's a summary, just what we process through as we move on. He's raised, Moses is raised by Pharaoh's daughter, chapter two. Chapter three, God calls Moses to deliver Israel. Moses wavers in doubt thousand excuses. Things get worse for Israel, not better. Moses then questions God's plan and then God reaffirms his character and covenant. That's chapter two through five. And if you were looking at that and I was looking at it, I think I would summarize it this way. Uh, There's a lot of things we can pull out, but I just chose one thread. The thing I would summarize in all of that is that Moses seems to stumble his way through God's call on his life. You see that? I mean, yes, he was faithful and he did it. And and Hebrews talks about his faith and we'll get to that later on in the coming weeks. But at this moment, God wasn't trying to show off Moses as his perfect deliverer. He was stumbling through his call. Oh, he got there, he did it, but he stumbled. Here's the takeaway. God calls flawed people to accomplish his faultless plans. I'm so thankful for that. God calls flawed people to accomplish his faultless plans. I know you know that. Most of us inside here know that truth. But I'm not concerned about you knowing that truth. I know that truth. And there's moments of me forgetting it. I'm concerned about you applying it to your heart through faith. Do you believe that? In the moments when you look in the mirror and say, I'm not worthy, I don't have what it takes. When you doubt God's plan and doubt God's hand and doubt God's methods, in those moments, you might be tempted to think, well, God's not gonna come through. 
But if you believe that God is using, his intention is to use weak and foolish and flawless people to accomplish his perfect plans, then you would say, well, I'm qualified. You look at your, your, your uh, inadequacies and you say, I'm disqualified. God looks at your inadequacies and says, you're qualified. Big difference. Chris, that's just you talking as a pastor. No, it's biblical. I'm not trying to make you feel warm and cute. This is not Disney. This is biblical teaching. God wants you to know that your inadequacies qualify you to be used by him. And you know what qualifies you to be used by him even more? You owning your inadequacies. Not making them excuses, but humbly saying, God, I'm weak and I need you. So I want to ask you a question as you reflect, as you think through Moses' interaction with God. Simple question, what is, or what are you staring at? I want you to answer it here now. Like, and you just choose a circumstance. Choose a circumstance right now that you would say, man, this is hard right now. It's hard. I want you to, once you have that circumstance, filter through this question. What are you staring at? You're either staring at your inadequacies or you're probably staring at the difficulty of the problem. I know this is a basic question. But basic things trip us up over all the time. What are you staring at? Your inadequacies, your faults, your failures? Are you staring at the size of the problem, the fact that things keep getting worse, circumstances around you? Or are you staring at, or do you need to stare at God's character and promises? We talk about why it's important to read the scriptures. You know why? Because the Bible says we forget often. And so we need to be reminded often of who God says he is and what he says he will do. Because he's faithful to his character and faithful to his promises. And so that is something of a foundation and an anchor to hold on to in the midst of things that seem like they're swirling out of control. I can't tell you why God's allowing things to happen in your life that are hard. I can tell you that God is working and I can tell you who to hold on to or what to hold on to, and that's him. The story of Moses so easily points out to, points to our own inadequacies. I see Moses and I see myself in Moses. Anyone see, Mo, anyone see themselves in Moses? I do that. I question God, complain to him. I doubt myself. The story of Exodus is supposed to also explain not just Moses and Israel, but also explains God. I told you last week, the story of Israel, the story of Exodus is also a story of Jesus. But where's Jesus in this? I don't see Jesus in this. Well, the story of Moses points to our inadequacies, but the story of Moses also thankfully points to a faithful deliverer. Where Moses and we, it's not just Moses, where Moses and we waver. Anyone waver in front of God's call in their life? Where Moses and we waver, check this, Jesus was resolved. Jesus did not waver. He knew exactly what he was going to. The Bible says his face was set like flint to Jerusalem. What does that mean? He was determined from the beginning of his ministry to go and die on the cross. He wasn't wavering. I don't want to. He did it. God called him to do it. He did it. He didn't complain about it. 
where you and I waver, Jesus is resolved. He was resolved. Where Moses and we are reluctant. I don't want to go. God, I don't, I don't want to do this. Jesus was willing. Even in the garden, he was willing. I don't want to do this, but your will, not mine. Willing. Hebrews says, for the what? Joy set before him, he endured the cross. We, we stumble, we complain through hardship, and yeah, we're broken, we do that. But I want you to see, because you're thinking, man, but wow, God has his promises being worked out through a whole bunch of broken people. Yes, but he has his ultimate promise being worked out through the perfect person, Jesus. And he did not waver. He, didn't, he wasn't reluctant. And where Moses and we questioned, Jesus was obedient. Would you stand with me? Chris, why, why jump to Jesus? This is about Moses and Israel. I'm talking about us and our faults. Why, why jump to Jesus? Because I don't want you walking away um, just thinking about your inadequacies, even though God can use them. I don't want you walking away putting too much pressure on the fact that you have to be faithful while you do have to be faithful and God wants you to be faithful and honors faithfulness. All those things are real. God wants you to be obedient. I want you to walk away and say, I want to be faithful. I want to be obedient in the circumstance that's hard. And the way I'm going to do that is by putting my eyes to the faithful and obedient one. Because if you walk out here and say, well, now it's on me, I'm not going to be like Moses anymore. I'm not going to question I'm not going to wrestle. I'm not going to make excuses. You know what's going to happen on Monday? Or Tuesday? Or Wednesday? Just give it some time. The excuses will come. The pressure isn't on you, family. Pressure is on Jesus and he accomplishes mission. So we worship Jesus because he's the perfect mediator. The Bible says there's a greater someone than Moses. He deserves more glory than Moses. Why? Because Moses was faithful in God's house, but Jesus was faithful over God's house. He was faithful through it all. And he is our example, but not just our example, like a teacher. He is our source of power. Chris, how am I going to get through some hard stuff that's coming up in my life? Fix your eyes on Jesus. Oh, but that's so simple. Yes, church, it is very simple. But if we were honest, it's probably one of the hardest things to do in those moments. And that's why we have a family that can say, man, Chris, you're looking at the wrong thing. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Thais, you're looking at the wrong stuff. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Tim, I know it's hard, but you're looking at the wrong thing. Look at Jesus. And we start to see his glory beauty father we we do want to put our eyes to you jesus because if we stare in the mirror we're very we're very aware we don't have what it takes to do what you've called us to do we don't we don't have what it takes and you're very aware of that lord you don't freak out with our inadequacies you don't think they're obstacles or problems we are vessels to be used by you but may we leave this morning believing a few things. One, that you are faithful to your promises. Two, that we need you because we are weak. We need you, God, 
Yes, we have weakness, but that should make us dependent. So God, we depend on you. And then we look to the one who was faithful through it all, who surrendered his life to the cross to die for our sins without complaining, but with joy. Thank you, Jesus, for being the perfect mediator. Thank you, Jesus, for answering the call of the Father to rescue your people from slavery. Thank you, Jesus, for being our model and our power. We love you today. We worship you today. Remind us, give us fresh eyes of faith. Give us clean hands. Give us a heart that says, I love you and I want to be faithful to you so that we can see your glory through our brokenness and the cracks. In Jesus' name, amen.